0: We are in 1 Peter, We've, uh, we, we, we were in, well, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, let me just say that. And we, this is part two, I did a message a couple weeks on a uh, word to Christian wives. So I would invite you to turn your copy of God's word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, hope you would grab maybe a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. In that Bible you can turn to page 1015. 1015. The God of Christianity is all good and all wise. Yes or no? God of Christianity is all good and all wise, Christian. Yes or no? Yes. Therefore, he knows what is best and always commands his creation, us, to do what is best. Yes? Right, that's the implication of saying that God is all good and all wise all the time. So whenever we rebel against or push back against God's commands found in his word or his instructions to us for how we are to live we are in effect saying that God is not all good or not all wise to some degree. We are saying that we know better than God that our way is better than His way. And beloved, this is the fight that we all deal with, the struggle that we all face. But we need to remind ourselves again and again, God is all good and all wise. Therefore, all that He has for me, all His instruction to me, is right and excellent and good. And rather than push back against it, I should embrace it. And I only say that as inter you again to this text because there is a lot of pushback against sections of text like this, especially in our current culture, suggesting this is outdated or antiquated or belongs in some other era. It does not. It is for us, as it was for the first century Christian. So having said that, let me read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We'll do a little review. And then we'll pick up where we left off from last time. By the way, I would encourage you, because I just don't have time, nor would it be appropriate to repeat everything I did a couple of weeks ago, but I would encourage you if you haven't, especially ladies, because this is primarily a word to you, although we have some, a word for the men as well today, but I would encourage you to go back, listen to the first message, and kind of fill in some of the blanks that might uh, be here today as we continue through this passage. So a word to Christian wives part 2 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 The apostle Peter wrote this Likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives When they see your respectful and pure conduct pure the word pure here means morally pure and sincere When they see your morally pure and sincere conduct conduct is the way you live, when they see you living this way, respectful and purely. Three, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Then you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. So just a few things to remind you of. Certainly, again, I feel like it's necessary to say this regularly, submission here is always We're going to talk about submission. That's what Peter has been talking about. He's been talking about submission to government, submission to your master, your employer, for employees or house servants or slaves. Now he speaks to wives. He's speaking to those who find themselves under authority and how they are to behave as Christians in this world, in that relationship. But the verb here, and what I wanted to say, the disclaimer was simply that that submission is always subject to submission to God. So any submission that we find ourselves in here that we're called to on a human relationship is always subject to submission first to God. So if if you are to submit to your husband, and you are as a wife, a Christian wife, or submit to the government, and they were to ask you to do something that God forbids, try to force you to do something that God forbids, or prevent you from doing something that God has commanded you to do, you have the duty, it's not even an option, you have the duty to reject that, to not submit in that case because you're submitting to God. And it's in that case in that case alone. uh, You can't just throw out everything and say, well, I'm not going to submit to you at all. But in that particular instance, you would not submit because God is the highest authority and he's the one who establishes the authorities here on earth. So having said that, The verb translated be subject, be subject here as we just read it in the ESV. Other translations have be submissive, same idea. Uh, And it's used again in the examples of submission in chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 18, and here as we just read in chapter 3, verse 1, when addressing wives. It always applies, and this is just review, a relationship of submission to an authority. Submission to an authority. It was used outside the New Testament to describe the submission and obedience of soldiers in an army to those of superior rank. I said all this last time, just want to catch you guys up in case you missed it. And as one commentator said, to operate effectively, the home, like every human institution, must have a head, one who is the authority, one who is the final authority. God assigned that pos- position to the husband, period. Period. The husband is the head. Now, he may be a bad head, or not a great head, or not the authority or proper authority he is to be, but he is established as the head. He may even try to abdicate his role. He may say, I don't want anything to do with it. And then the wife, not knowing what to do, picks up that role. That happens all the time, but that's not how it is to be by God's design. The husband is to be the head, the final authority in the home. But, as we were saying last time, submission is not the husband's to command. You won't find that anywhere in the scriptures. The husbands are not told, make your wife submit. You won't find that. Rather, it is the wife's to willingly offer her submission to the husband. So I talked about that last time. If a wife is not living in submission to her husband, the husband does not have the right to threaten her to belittle her, to manipulate her, to scare her, or to force her into submission. That is not a biblical approach to his wife. He is to love her, to care for her, to strengthen her, to encourage her, to instruct her, certainly, to pray for her, to model Christ to her, to show his obedience, which is to love his wife sacrificially to the gospel, his obedience to the gospel and to Christ. And by that example, encourage his wife to live in obedience to Christ as well. The word likewise, there at verse 1, likewise, we we spent some time talking about that. I'm not going to explain all that again just to tell you. When he says likewise, I believe it it refers back to verse 13 of chapter 2, which is where this whole conversation began, where Peter begins the topic of submission to authority, and he says there, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So likewise, in a similar way, for the Lord's sake, that's the similarity. Wives are to be subject to their own husbands for the Lord's sake, for the concern or concern for his honor and his cause, a concern to not bring dishonor on his name. In other words, if a wife does not live this way, she brings dishonor on the name of Christ because she's failing to, in this area, obey Him, and demonstrate God's design for the home, to the watching world. One writer says, when Christians claim to believe God's Word, but do not obey it, the Word is dishonored. Many have mocked God and His truth because of the sinful behavior of those who claim to be Christians. Is that not so? Yes. Sadly, that is so. So you can talk about Christ all day, but then you're then you fail as a wife to, to come under your husband and his leadership, it's inconsistent. So this is another area where we need to trust the Lord and obey him and grow in our sanctification. As I said last time, the theme of Christians, the Christians witness to a watching and unsaved world, it underlies this entire section here in First Peter. So then Peter, in addressing wives and their submission to their husbands, brings up the matter of a wife, we just read it, having an unbelieving husband. So in this case, the unsaved world is right there in her home, watching her up close. And he speaks to the influence here, Peter does, or impact of her godly conduct or submission and and what that can have, the impact it can have on her unbelieving husband. They said, last time, her submission acquires a saving significance if the husband is not a Christian. It assumes an evangelistic function. And I addressed this as well. How does that work exactly? And I believe one um, Bible commentator really captured it well when he said the unbelieving husband sees this behavior and deep within perceives the beauty of it. He understands it, He sees it. This submissive wife, this, this, this wife who's following the lead of her husband, as she honors the Lord. Within his heart, there is a witness that this is right. This is how God intended men and women to relate as husband and wife. He concludes, therefore, that the gospel which his wife believes must be true as well. Must be true as well. I believe that's right. Another writer adds this, that unbelieving husbands may be alienated by wives who constantly beg them to become Christians. Put off. And you can understand the heart of a a wife with an unbelieving husband, right? A Christian wife with an unbelieving husband. Of course, she wants nothing more than for her man who's leading this home to be a man who's following God. So you could see her pleas and her desires and her heart and her sadness and her brokenness and all of that and and all the ways that she might attempt to get at that. But as we read here in Peter and the writer goes on to say, a better course is to live a faithful Christian life. And as they see the transformation of their wives, they are more likely to be inclined to adopt the faith of their wives. If they understand that this excellent and beautiful behavior is coming or being driven by the gospel that they believe and that they keep presenting or have presented to their husbands, then they will be more inclined by the beauty of that behavior to look at and possibly embrace this said gospel. Picking up where we left off. We left off after verse 2, so now we'll look at verse 3. 1 Peter 3, three. So then Peter says, Do not let your adorning, that's a noun, by the way, adorning there, be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Just remember, this: is, it's in the context of submission that he's saying these things. Sometimes this verse is another one of those passages people just kind of rip out of its context, but it's right here, right alongside submission in his command for husbands to submit, sorry, for wives, scratch that from the tape, we don't do tapes, for wives to submit to their husbands, even to the ones who are disobedient to the word. So do not let your adorning be external abrading of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Okay, so adorn, because that's not a word that I think we generally use, but adorn the verb means to make more beautiful or attractive, uh, to lend beauty to. So maybe you've heard this, people, and we're coming up on the season, people will adorn their Christmas tree. That phrasing is sometimes, maybe not, and it used to be used. You adorn the Christmas tree. Or you might adorn the holiday table with the turkey. You're beautifying the table with, with the food. With, yes, absolutely. That is a beautiful table. What makes it beautiful? That turkey. Okay, so adorn. But here it's a noun, okay, in 1 Peter 3.3. 3, he's not telling them to do something. It's a noun, so a better translation or not even a better... Adorning's fine, but you might, you could use the word beauty as this translation does. It says, let your beauty not be external. Let your beauty not be external. That's what he's saying there to Christian wives. Now, listen. Some have taught concerning this passage that Peter is instructing wives here, indeed commanding wives, to not focus at all on their outward beauty or attraction. Let that sit for a second. So... Uh, Based on that understanding, women have been told then by those who have taught such things that it isn't right for them to fix up their hair in a special way or wear pretty jewelry or even put on perfume or makeup for that matter. But most Bible commentators agree that is not what Peter intends here. In addition, as one Bible teacher points out, that would contradict what we read about Solomon's bride in Song of Solomon, who did adorn herself externally, or did various things to make herself even more attractive to Solomon, and is praised by Solomon for her external beauty, along with other things. Okay? So obviously, there are extremes, right? And for sure, Peter was addressing the extremes in his culture. There are extremes in our culture. Our culture is absolutely obsessed, and it's not unique. It was the the same in the first century. It has been. Obsessed with beauty, external beauty, especially ladies. I know you ladies would like men to be a little more obsessed with looking good, (laughs) but... Women tend to be, as a culture, obsessed with this. Okay, But I don't believe, as other commentators have stated, I don't believe that Peter is saying you absolutely have should have no concern about it at all. In fact, in order to keep uh, people from thinking that is what Peter is actually doing, prohibiting a Christian wife from making any effort to beautify herself or make herself more attractive to her husband... One very good Bible translation, I use it all the time here from the pulpit when making references, they add a little word. They add a little word to verse 3 in their translation. It's not there in the original, but they add it because they believe the intent is there. Let me show it to you. It's the New American Standard Bible. It says this, your adornment must not be, what's the word? Merely. Merely external. That is not in the original language, but in an attempt to make sure that you don't misunderstand, as far as they're concerned, what Peter is saying, they add that word and they put it in italics so in the New American Standard Bible to let you know it's not there in the original. In fact, concerning this, a matter of uh, possibly a woman thinking that she shouldn't do anything, uh, concerning her external beauty or to, or to make herself more beautiful externally, one Bible commentator, pastor, adds this. It is certainly possible for a woman's appearance to be so unkempt, messy, and unadorned as to embarrass and discourage her husband, to whom such indifference in the name of Christ would make the gospel offensive and be just as spiritually detrimental as too much attention given to externals. So let me see if I can help you understand that. So this is the idea. So his wife, at one point, was maybe doing herself up, using general terms, right? Then she comes to Christ, and then she stops doing herself up. She goes, just forgive me for the general term. She goes, plain Jane. Okay, Maybe she even goes, lower than plain Jane. Maybe she doesn't do anything to make herself more beautiful to her husband externally. And he says to her, what is going on? Well, it's the gospel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I don't want anything to do with that. (laughs) Do you see? I mean, really? I mean, in fact, my counsel that I've given to some, I've done this multiple times to some uh, stay-at-home moms who work at home and have... Very, I mean, hard jobs, especially you add number of children and trying to keep the house and all of this, and sometimes that is an area where they just let themselves go. So by that I mean they wake up, and then nothing happens to them externally. (laughs) Their husband goes to work. When he goes to work, he sees women who are made up, generally speaking, all day long. He interacts with them. Then he comes home. And his wife is in the same condition that he found her when she left, looking like she just got out of bed. This is not wise. This is not good. So I've encouraged women in that situation to to do something about that and to prepare themselves for their husband. And so... To make their husbands excited to come home i 'm not saying that 's everything, it certainly isn't everything, and there are certain days where a wife just can 't pull it off, and a husband should be sensitive to those things, and I'm like, look at you, you weren 't even ready for me when I got home seriously, but as a general rule of thumb that she would try, she would make an effort in this regard, but you know there are some some days where she 's not going to pull it off because the kids are killing her, you know, and she 's just trying to make it she 's trying to survive, (laughs) and there should be some understanding there. But at the same time, a wife should not neglect such things for the sake of her husband. She certainly never did that when they initially got together, right? She always looked her best. But then we go into marriage, and it doesn't matter anymore. It certainly does matter. So anyway, so Peter is not prohibiting a wife from desiring. I don't believe that at all. He's not prohibiting a wife from desiring and doing something externally to make herself more attractive or beautiful to her husband. Rather, Peter wants Christian wives, because there's such an excess in our culture, such an extreme in this area, such a focus, he wants Christian wives to have a proper biblical perspective and to understand and focus on what is what truly has greater value and worth than external beauty. And that beloved is of course inner beauty. Inner beauty. Okay? Now, we know that, right? I think we know that generally. Inner beauty is more important than external beauty. Of greater value, yes? In fact, we have no doubt all heard regarding or something regarding this matter um, of inner outer beauty at a wedding when someone gets up to speak about the bride and paying the bride a compliment, says something like this, she is not only beautiful on the outside, but she is beautiful on the inside. They say it in some way like that, and everyone goes, aw, right? Have you heard that? Why do we draw attention to that? Beautiful on the outside, but ugly on the inside is not something one can endure for, endure for long. Huh? And in the end, it is entirely unattractive and repulsive. Yeah? This is, why, this is why we say, yes, that's important. You're not only beautiful on the outside, but we should even say more importantly, but people generally say, you're beautiful on the inside as well. And we always say, yes. Because can you imagine at a, at a, at a wedding... Someone says, you know, um, they are really good looking, but on the inside, oh my gosh, right? But you know what? Look how good looking she is. Aren't you encouraged? You know, everyone would be like, he's dead. He's in trouble. He's a dead man walking. And you you know, we know this, right? Because you think about the Proverbs. Uh, Thomas took us through the Proverbs. You might remember some of these passages. And I have to giggle every time I read them because they're so true. Proverbs 21, nine. it is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Like in the attic. <laughs> you understand? That's Remember, this is Solomon telling his son, you know, choose wisely. <laughs> choose wisely. Uh, 21.19, it goes on, it is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful wife, or ill-tempered wife. In fact, one translation just says, naggy, angry wife it is better to live in the desert, son. Uh, Finally, 27.15. This is good. A continual dripping on a rainy day. Drip, 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 drip. And a quarrelsome wife are alike. But it doesn't doesn't go on and say, but if she's a looker. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry about it, man. It'll make up for it. No, it won't. It will not make up for it. It, That only lasts so long, and beauty is a passing. It's a temporal thing. So it is the greater importance. Now, the inner beauty that Peter refers to, it, it is not seen in the Christian woman's outward appearance. It's not. But rather, in her words and actions, in her words and actions, it is an inner beauty that doesn't fade away with time. It doesn't fade away with time. It is a beauty, listen, a beauty that God desires and delights in, according to the Apostle Peter. One writer says, What matters most to God is not what people look like on the outside, but their godly character. We're so focused on the outside, right? Right? To the extreme, to a level that is not good, not healthy, totally not focused on, generally speaking, the thing that God is actually focused on that inward beauty, that godly character. That's what matters most to God, beloved. And what matters most to God should be what matters most to us who are His people. Yes or no? Yes. What matters most to God should be what matters most to us. Take a time to examine your own hearts. Even men in this case, I would say. You could put so much focus on your wife's external beauty, putting no focus on her sanctification, her growth in the Lord then what matters most to you is not the same thing that matters most to God. You hear me? See, I said I have a few things for you men along the way. But ladies as well. So focused on, so focused on what they look like on the outside and and maybe giving no time, spending potentially hours at the gym, but little time in the Word. That's out of balance, beloved. That's out of balance. Going shopping for hours, but neglecting their time with the body of Christ. That's out of balance, beloved. What is most important to you, apparently, is not the same thing that is most important to God. And you need to change that. Look back at the text. Please. So Peter puts it all this way. Verse 3 Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning, your beauty, your attractiveness be the hidden or inner, is another way to translate that, person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very, what? Precious. Specifically here, Peter instructs Christian wives to focus on and cultivate the imperishable inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. One writer comments, this kind of beauty cannot be hung around the neck like a flashing pendant. Rather, it grows within like a lovely flower. You can't just throw this on, you know. Take it off. It grows from within. It's God's work in you. Now, listen. The word translated gentle, this is what it means. This is what it means. Not pushy. Not selfishly assertive. Not demanding one's own way. That is what the word means. Gentle. Not pushy. Not selfishly assertive. Not demanding one's own way. By the way, the word occurs three other times in the New Testament. That's it. And twice, twice, it refers to Christ. So this is not a virtue intended for women alone. Right, Men, we also have relationships in which we are to submit. Submit to our government, submit to our employer, submit to the leadership in the church. We too are to be gentle, not pushy, not selfishly assertive, not demanding our own way. That's gentle. That's the instruction to the wife. And then, quiet spirit. So a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, a quiet spirit doesn't mean that a Christian woman or wife should speak very softly. Yes, you're okay, babe. (laughs) You're safe. (laughs) But rather, sweetie, it points to a spirit, listen, this is what the word implies, which calmly bears the disturbances created by others and which itself does not create disturbances. It calmly bears the disturbances created by others outside coming in and here, it does not then also or create its own disturbances. Quiet spirit. Uh, it's a, it pictures a quiet disposition. Or let me put it this way. It is a spirit that does not readily get stirred up and doesn't look to stir things up. Yeah? You with me? A woman with a quiet spirit would not be characterized as a scrapper. Do you know what that means? Scrapper. I use that word because my wife used to be a scrapper. Now listen, this is, bef- this is before she came to Christ and everything else. This is- I have to, sweetie, I have to. She, um, I found this out after I met her and everything, and we got married very quickly, so I found out a lot of this things after the fact. I still would have married her, but either way. Um, <laughs> scrapper. She used to fight boys, and she would initiate it. That's that's what I mean. A scrapper looks like you 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 know you irritate a scrapper. They're like, all right, let's let's get down then. Let's get down. Let's do it. You know they so they don't calmly bear disturbances. They do not. They look to put an end to disturbances with violence and. And if there's nothing going on like that, they look to start something, because it's fun to be violent and fight and, and hurt people, I guess. And so obviously I'm using the extreme. She wasn't that bad, I think, I think, although boys were afraid of her. So that, and you understand, so I, this is the woman I brought into my life, and so I uh, had to, we did some work, you know, God. And I should say, because you'd probably, if you knew, you know Allie now, and you'd say, there's no way, that's not true. Oh yeah, it was true. And... And, I would say, maybe in her, her difficult times, hard week or something, that little scrapper thing might rise up again. It might rise up. You can see it. <laughs> Not as bad as it used to be. but uh, And then, you know, we put it down. So, um, by the grace of God. You know, when I, I, to illustrate this, I just thought of our, our culture because if you don't, if you've never used the, we used the word scrapper when I was growing up, so that's why I used it. But uh, that's our culture, man. You, if you look on, especially even with ladies now, unfortunately, you know, ladies used to be the. It was not necessarily that way, okay? Generally speaking, and men, yeah, you know, you had the bad boys, but it seems it's across the board now. So if you watch any of these ridiculous, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, reality shows, Real Housewives of. Real housewives of Orange County, whatever, right? Needless to say, it always ends up in some brawl, fight. Women, grown women, wives. And this is like entertainment. This is good. Yelling at each other, screaming at each other. I'm going to... Grabbing each other's hair. they got to pull each other off of each other. All right? These women do not have a gentle and quiet spirit. That is the very opposite, and yet that's what's being, in a sense, promoted. I mean, these are supposed to be, you know, these are well-to-do wives, and this is how they act, and that's what's being modeled to our ladies. Oh, my goodness. Be careful what your kids watch. Be careful what you watch. One writer says, Whatever the world may think of such an unassuming and mild disposition, for the believer, the final test is whether it wins God's approval. In his eyes, it is a spiritual gem of great worth, of infinitely more value than perishable outer adornments. And it's shone brilliantly in the person of God's dear Son. I can just see, you know, certain people in our culture going, oh, please, gentle and quiet spirit. They just want to control you. That's, that's bygone era, man. Get with the times. Get with the times, you know. You don't take no lip. (laughs) That's our culture. It's always been true for men, but it's even true for women now. Really? (laughs) Look at verse 5. So after he says that, he brings out some examples. For this is how the holy women... Uh, Holy, just to remind you, holy means set apart. Thomas talked about this last week. Set apart for and unto God, for him, to him, for his service. So these, not Christian women because they're Old Testament women, but women who followed Yahweh, God. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So Peter goes on, we're going to read it in a second, in the next verse, verse 6, to give in the person of Sarah a specific example for his readers of a godly woman woman, from the past and her submission to her husband, who was Abraham. We also read about this morning, Abram, before God changed his name to Abraham. And we'll get into that in a moment. But in verse 5, Peter here refers generally to the example of godly women from the past. These holy women, he says, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves or beautify themselves just as Peter instructed Christian wives to do in verse 4. That is, listen, they made a practice of manifesting or exhibiting the imperishable inner beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And how was that? By submitting to their own husbands. Or to say it another way, the inner disposition of a gentle and quiet spirit beautifully manifested itself in these godly women's willful submission to their own husbands. Now, let me draw your attention to the phrase in verse 5, hoped in God. You see that there? For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, In God, Peter says. He could have left that out. Phrase would have been fine. The Instruction would have been fine. He didn't have to include that little phrase, who hoped in God. So why did he include it? Well, let me ask you this. What was it that inspired the godly conduct of these wives from the past? What motivated their submission to their own husbands? It was their hope in God. It was their hope in God. One writer, seeing that connection and commenting on it, says this. Wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation. Neither do they submit to show how godly they are, nor to avoid conflict, you know, go along to get along, nor to impress the neighbors. Look how submissive I am nor to manipulate their husbands. If I do this, I can get something from him later. And not even because she thinks he is wise, because who knows? (laughs) She submits because of her relationship with and trust in God. See, if, if there's something wrong there, if it's out of whack there, the relationship with God, then the relationship with her husband certainly in this area, will also suffer. That's why we always say horizontal relationships, the problems there, are fixed only when your vertical relationship is intact and working and functioning properly. Then these horizontal relationships can function as God intended them. Otherwise, forget it. This relationship is good then this relationship will be as it ought to, or at least you'll be responding as you ought to in a way that honors God. Another writer says these women did not submit to their husbands because they believed their husbands were superior to them, intellectually or spiritually. Don't, that's not the case. They didn't say, oh, I'll submit to you, a wise one. Oh, because you're better than me. no because neither is the case necessarily. They could be wiser than their wives, but in many cases, like I said, who knows? And superior, certainly not. Certainly not, not before the eyes of God. They are given a position of rank in the house, you might say, a superior rank in the sense that they have an office, head. They have responsibility, that's what they have. Not to be abused, but to be used for the glory of God. They're not superior, and they're not submitting for that reason. They're submitting because, they're, or at least they should be submitting, because of their trust in God. Believing that He is all good, all wise. That He rewards those who obey Him and follow Him. He does. And believe Him and take His word as it is the truth. And you will find reward. They trust in their God. And therefore they submit. Beloved, it would be the same thing with any other command that we have from the Word of God for us as men or as women or as the body of Christ in general. We are to submit because of our trust in God, because of our relationship with Him. We are to to do all the things to love and to encourage and to strengthen to walk in holiness and all these things and repent of sin because of our trust in God. We're believing that what He says is true and right and good, and therefore we are to do it. Then in verse 6, Peter brings up the example of Sarah. Okay, specific example. So he turns from general, women of old. They did this, these godly women. Now let me talk about Sarah. Look back at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Six, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Sarah was obedient to her husband Abraham. Okay? Okay? Throughout her life she willingly lived, as far as we know, and as far as the scriptures indicate, she lived in submission to him. She followed her husband's lead, even when it was quite difficult, beloved. And you gotta think about God's just giving Abraham instructions and Abraham is following God and and now God's saying or Abraham's saying, We gotta do this, we gotta go, and you didn't you don't have any recording of Sarah saying, No, I don't think so, honey, I don't think so. I don't think that's gonna be happening. I ain't going nowhere. I ain't doing that. Not that she would use improper English, but I do. (laughs) I'm not doing that. She went. She followed him. She was a submissive woman. Sarah. One writer says Sarah was held up by the rabbis as the model of submissiveness. The rabbis, the Jewish teachers and leaders of the day. So certainly, Peter uses her as well as an example here of submissiveness. Now, the reference to Sarah calling Abraham Lord. I know you... You're curious about that, right? A small L, by the way. Small L, not capital L, okay? It is simply an indication of her submissiveness. Not in the sense that Abraham said, woman, I want you to call me Lord. (laughs) And so she did. Not in that sense, okay? But it's actually, the only reference we have of that is in Genesis 18, 12, uh, of her calling him Lord. And it's actually just a, a reference that she makes in passing. She's referring to her husband. She's not even speaking to him. She's referring to talking about her husband, and she naturally referred to him as Lord. And using that term, just in a natural way to refer to her husband, implies that Sarah then recognized Abraham as the leader and head of their household. The, the word is also translated Master. Lord, master, master in the NIV. It, in fact, it means one who exercises authority over. And that is how she referred to her man, to her husband. So it's just a way of Peter saying, this woman, uh, she submitted to her man. She obeyed her husband. Look, she even, the way she refers to him as Lord is another example of her living in submission to him. That's how she sees him. And that is how she... Lived her life. Peter goes on to say at the end of verse 6 and you are her children, to the Christian wives he's writing to and to you as well, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, so what is that supposed to mean? And there's some different opinion about this, but let me give you another translation that is helpful, I think, in determining its meaning. It's from the NIV. And it says, you are her daughters, and I think that's just simply a reference to you reflect her likeness, you are her children in that sense, but it's conditional, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. I think that's a, a good translation, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Another translation of it, the NIVR, says, Sarah was like that, she obeyed Abraham, she called him her master, do you want to be like her? then do what is right and don't give in to fear. All right, so the way I understand this passage is that for the wife to faithfully live in submission, willfully, to her husband or to willfully choose to follow her husband's lead, wherever that may take her, excluding into sin, of course, could lead to a good deal of anxiety and fear for the wife. Huh? You get where I'm going? And especially if her husband is an unbeliever. In other words, okay, I'm a believer now. I'm I'm, I'm a follower of Christ, and here's this man who I'm to submit to, but he doesn't follow Christ. So that's even more crazy, more potentially scary. It's hard enough with Christian husbands it can be difficult enough to follow and submit to them and not have fear and anxiety about where they're leading you, wives. Hello? Yes? I know your your husband's right there. That's fine. You don't want to say anything, but I'm just going to say it for you. It can be difficult. It can be very difficult to say, God, are you sure? Are you sure about this one? Maybe this was just for first century wives, you know? Not for me. You don't understand the husband I'm married to. Yee, you know? You know? I'm not sure this guy's got it all there. Two tacos short of a combo, you know what I'm saying? I don't know know if that makes any sense. but, But unbelieving husband or not, the Christian wife is to trust in God and to submit to her own husband with a gentle and quiet spirit. Unbelieving husband or not, that's what Peter's saying. She is not to let her fears keep her from doing what is good and right. That is to willingly submit to the the God established authority in that marriage. God established. But that will, of course, require that she put all of her hope and trust in God. She's going to need to do that in order to, like we need to do, to follow God's commands. That can be difficult. So here it is. She's got this husband, and she's like, I don't know, Lord, trust me let me work out my plan obey me trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in jesus but to trust and obey you know we i mean we don't sing that here do we but cuz it's one of those you're like oh you're on a merry go round and but we sing that song and it's a really good lyric it's good that's yeah trust and obey the lord you do that by wise by submitting to your husbands. Don't give in to potential anxiety and fear of doing that. Again, you know, if he's if he's saying, Honey, we're gonna go rob a bank. <laughs> well, I just need to trust God. I mean I could end up in prison, but uh and say, No, sweetie, pie. I cannot go rob the bank, because my Lord says, Thou shalt not steal. Okay. Can you cook me some dinner? Yes, I will do that, honey. I will do that. But I cannot rob the bank with you. Are we clear on that? All right, all right. I'll figure out another way. You know, I'm, that's what I... Trust. Obviously, that's ridiculous, but I'm, you can maybe draw from it something. And this, and this, by the way, and this godly conduct can be used by the Lord in the salvation of her husband if he's not a believer. That's what Peter's saying. Trust me. Submit with a gentle and quiet spirit. Demonstrate that beauty to him that draws him to the gospel that has called you to live in such a way. Trust me. You know? Your husband might do some dumb things. Trust me. All right. That's the conclusion, because we got to be done, and we are. We're done. So this is what I would say to you. There are some other passages, ladies. And I mentioned this before. In Ephesians 5:22 through23, Colossians 3:18, you can look at the surrounding verses, Titus chapter two, verse five. I would encourage you, ladies, as you're, you're meditating on this passage here in First Peter, that you also look to these passages and meditate on them as well. God is always good, and he is all-wise. Yes or no? Therefore, what he commands of his people is always the best, always good, always all-wise, always right. Now you have to believe that. Trust and obey. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Father, uh, just help us. We, we struggle. There are, there are parts that we find maybe easier to obey than others. So, Lord, we we recognize that we always need your help. We do. We, We need more. We need you. We need you. We need your power. We need your grace. We need your spirit. And thank you, God, that you have given it to us who are yours. Father, the best of us wants to honor you with our lives. We do not want to dishonor you. So help us to do that. With this text and all the texts that are before us and that we've already gone through, Father, help us to live in obedience to them, to surrender ourselves to them, to really trust you, to know that you know what you're doing, and to live accordingly for your glory, for the glory of Christ and his church. Amen.